0: Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. For those of you who might not know who I am or maybe have slipped in during the worship my name is Ryan youth and worship pastor here at Chilton and uh, almost almost getting up to two years here with you guys and it's been a wonderful journey so far but we are we're in a series called origins which is part of a bigger series really where we're looking at the foundations of the Christian faith and we're, we're looking at these foundations we're looking into the Old Testament through the spectacles if you were of Hebrews 11, so Hebrews is a book in the New Testament, and it's, it's not really a letter, it's more of a sermon actually, it's quite a unique book, and we're not quite sure who wrote it, it was, it was one, a very um, powerful book, and it was one of the last ones added to what we call the canon, the collection of books that we consider the Bible, the, Hebrews, uh, the Christian scriptures rather, and so we're looking at this chapter in Hebrews 11, which is all about faith. And in this chapter, the writer is looking at some key moments and particularly some key characters throughout the history of the Bible, the history of the people of God. And as he highlights these characters, we want to use that as a platform to jump into the Old Testament and to look at what are the foundations, what are the stories, what are the groundings for the gospel? What are the groundings for what happens when Jesus comes? Where? What does Jesus come after? And what is the gospel built on? And what are the foundations that we need to understand to have a better understanding of the New Testament and of the gospel? But also because the chapter deals with faith, it looks back into these stories and highlights particularly the faith of these characters. We also want to have a better understanding of what faith is and what does it mean to live by faith and walk by faith. And so we, we're looking at these stories in the Old Testament and and I've decided not to spend too much time looking at some of the the technical scientific reasoning behind any of these stories, because I believe in the Old Testament because I believe in the resurrection. That's my basis. And it's good to spend time studying how we understand the flood, which we're going to look at today, and how we understand Jonah and all of these other characters who will come up. But really it comes down to, do you believe who Jesus is? Do you believe he is who he says he is? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Because Jesus took the Old Testament as God's word. And so for me, I believe in the Old Testament because I believe in the resurrection. And as we approach these Old Testament stories and look at them through the lens of Hebrews 11, we do so so that we can have a better grounding and understanding of our faith, the Christian faith, the gospel, and so that we can understand what faith is. What does it mean to live by faith? And so we're right at the beginning of this. We're looking at the story of the Bible. And really, we're, we're going to be in Genesis for quite a while. We're going to stick in, in that bit and, and do a bit of Exodus next year. But Genesis is really broken up into two big sections. You've got the first 11 chapters, which is talking about God and man. The theologians will call it the primeval history. It's the how everything began and the real origins. And then next week, we start the next big section, which Jason will kick off looking at God and Abraham and his descendants. Abraham is really the answer to some of the problems that we see in the first section. And so I'm going to look at the ending of the section, particularly looking at Noah, but I'll I'll do a bit of summarizing as well. But at this point, we, we know that God has created. He has created all things good. He has created humanity and designed them in his image. He has designed us in his image with intention with purpose and with the purpose particularly of extending God's rule on the earth but we we didn't quite take up that responsibility in the way we should have and so we sin and there was a fall and the beautiful world that God has created has now been broken and tainted and is in need of rescue and we see this play out last week we looked at Cain and Abel and how in the family structure already there was now sin and breakdown, and murder. One of the descendants of that, of Cain, who gets cast out is a man called Lamech, and he actually builds one of the first cities, but it's a city of violence, and a city of perversion. We then come to the story a bit later of these, these interesting characters called the sons of God, and we're not quite sure whether they're supernatural beings, or were these powerful kings who were just considered themselves like deities, but what we know is they did some evil things, And again, we see these cities of violence and the spread of evil coming. I like to think of when sin entered the world. It's like if you think of a stream that's at the top of a mountain that goes down and breaks up into valleys. But you've taken this big ton of poison and just dropped it at the source. And now it's just trickling down. And we're seeing the trickle down of sin into the family unit, into cities and into the world. And it's breaking everything. It's poisoning everything. And so we we pick up that the world has now been ruined by the sin of humans. God's world has been ruined. And that's where we pick up with our story. And we're going to start in Genesis and then go to the Hebrews. I like to give a roadmap, as I said last week. And so we're going to start by looking at the story of Noah in Genesis 6. And I, I can't cover the whole story. It takes up about four or five chapters. And so we're going to look at the start of the story, what God says. Okay, I'll summarize what actually happens. There's a flood. And then, spoiler alert. Okay. And then in Genesis 9, after the flood, God makes a promise and a declaration, as Jason mentioned, this, this word covenant. And so we're going to look at those two pieces on either side of the story, look at the two main themes that I want to focus on out of that. And then we'll jump into Hebrews and have a look at what Hebrews adds to that. And come away with, hopefully, some real sense of what God sees when he sees sin and how we should respond. All right, so let's jump in and maybe the clicker will work. Oh, yes, praise the Lord, O my soul. Okay, Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This hasn't even engaged Noah yet. This is an interesting little section here. Because it's it's almost like we get a glimpse into what God is is almost dealing with in his own mind. It's God it's God's almost making this personal decision in his own mind and, and it breaks up quite nicely. I mean there's a nice little sermon just in this section alone, but we won't do that, we don't have time. But we see here that God sees something, God grieves about what he sees, and then he says something and continues then to engage. God sees the moral decay. He says that the wickedness of man is great. It's it's that man has taken what God created for good and used it for evil, defiling the good things that God has created. And this still is really what sin is today. It's where we take the things God has given us, the good things that God has made, and we use them in a way he didn't intend. We defile the creation. And rebel against the creator. But it goes so far that this this sin is like an inner compulsion. That's not just action. It actually dominates their thoughts. It's such a strong verse that every intention of the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. The extent of wickedness has just ravaged the earth. The desires of their hearts are evil. It's one thing to do something bad. It's then another thing to think something bad. But when it gets to the level that the desire of our heart is just to do wrong, that's lostness. That's wickedness. And that was the situation. This is the setting. This is the context that the flood comes into. God sees something. And he's not just emotionally distant from it either. It's one of the most profound things because the next thing we see is that God Grieves over what he sees. the The sin that is being felt and experienced and pleasing the hearts of mankind, that that evil is also wounding the heart of God. He's that invested in his creation. He's that invested in us. That when when we do things. And out of the evil of our heart, it wounds his heart. And that's what's happening here. He sees this world that he created. And in Genesis 1 goes, so good. So good. Humanity, my image, so good. But now broken. Rebelling. Rebelling. And when God says that he regrets, that he is sorry that he has made man, he's not, he's not confessing some sort of mistake. He's not saying, oh, I shouldn't have done this. What a bad idea. God's actually saying two really simple things here. He's saying, I'm so sad. For lack of a better word, I am so sad to see what man has become. Many of us have people in our lives and we've watched them make mistakes. And we go, oh, they had so much potential. They had so much potential. They just oh, they just kept making these mistakes and these unwise decisions. And you go, Oh, but why did you do that? I'm so sad to see where you've come to. There's like this, there's like a measure of disappointment. And for God creating man in his image to display his glory and to rule the earth on his behalf, to see them then go down to the level of pure wickedness, it just goes. There was so much potential and my heart is sad. And secondly, God regrets because he knows in the holiness of who he is, what must be done. What must be done. There is always, this was so profound for me to think about. There is always a measure of sadness in God's wrath. Always. Anytime God Brings wrath, brings judgment in his heart. There's always a good measure of sadness. He doesn't delight in it. He delights in his justice. He delights in his holiness. He delights in the fact that he is good and right and just. But there is sadness in the heart of God when he has to dispel judgment and wrath. There is always a measure of sadness in every ounce of God's wrath. And so he sees the evil in this world, and he grieves on it, and then he speaks. He makes a personal decision to take action and to cleanse the world at this moment in history. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. I couldn't help but wonder how hard that might have been. Like in such a wicked world, how how hard must it have been to be blameless? You could say, "Oh, you well, wouldn't be a high standard." You could have just easily stood out. You just had to do so. Or when everything around you is purely evil, how hard is it to maintain that resolve to follow God? Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and it says this thing. It says that Noah walked with God. And it only says this explicitly of two people in the Old Testament. We looked at the one last week, Enoch. And it says that he walked with God and then God took him up and rescues him from death. He doesn't see death. And interestingly, we know the story of Noah. He walks with God and similarly, he experiences a rescue. Other members in the Old Testament, other people walk before God in service but only these two are spoken as walking with God, other than in the garden with Adam and Eve, when all things began. And so God approaches Noah, because Noah stands out in God's eyes. And you'll notice this, this thing coming out. It's in God's eyes, because God is the one who assesses what's right and wrong. He sees the world, and what's evil is what he sees. It's evil. And in his eyes, it's wrong. But in, in his eyes, Noah stands out as just and righteous and righteous. And blameless in his generation. And so God then dispels favor. He bestows favor on Noah. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth. And behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. God now speaks to Noah, and it's quite an interesting little play on words that you won't get out of the English translation. There's a really interesting play on words here. And if I had to almost try and rewrite it, one of the commentators says it's almost like he's saying, The earth has been brought to ruin. Yes, it has been ruined. All flesh has ruined its way. I will ruin them. It's like God almost giving them what their actions are asking for. He's he's taking it all the way, saying you you are destroying everything with your sin. So let's go the full way. Let's bring that destruction that has been asked for. And so Noah is warned and he's instructed to build an ark and he gives a whole bunch of dimensions. And then God gives a reason in verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then we jump to verse 22. Noah did this, built the ark. He did all that God commanded him. And just to focus a bit on Noah here, what's really fascinating is that in this whole story, Noah doesn't say a word. We don't have any recorded words from Noah. He doesn't say thing, But time and again, this phrase, Noah did all that the Lord commanded of him, comes up again and again, showing us the righteousness of Noah. He doesn't speak. He doesn't seem to question God. There are four chapters of just silent obedience. A blameless man, a righteous man. And we, we sort of know what happens in the story, but I'll summarize. Noah builds this ark. Him and his family and the animals enter the ark. The flood comes, it rains for 40 days. Waters swell until the mountains are covered. God sends winds and eventually the waters start to recede. Noah then does a few experiments to see whether there's land. He sends out a raven, the raven can't find land, it comes back. So he decides to try a smarter bird, so he sends out the dove. (laughs) The dove doesn't come back. And so he assumes there's land, interestingly enough, though, he still doesn't leave the ark. Because he only does what God commands. And so a few days later, God says, exit the ark. Then Noah leaves the ark. And after a year of the ark and this flood, a year on God's command, they exit. And the first thing Noah does, build an altar and worship. He builds an altar. And, worship. and I know that as we've been reading some of these texts, we haven't even read the flood in its entirety. We've just read God's declaration, his, his disdain towards sin. And we've read about how he's going to just flood the earth. And there must be in us, if we're human at all, some measure of horror. Because if you go past the children's coloring in books with the giraffe's neck sticking out the side going, hey, this is a fun cruise. We realize this is a terrible story terrible moment in history it's the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity ever it is a terrifying picture and and we need to feel this we need to feel this it's actually important that we feel that uncomfortableness because sin is serious that's the first big theme you get from the story Right through the first few chapters of Genesis, you just get the reality. God takes sin seriously. It's not something he trifles at. It's something that deeply offends him. And it's not popular for us sometimes to talk about sin. It's not popular for us to talk about God as a righteous God who's going to judge who has wrath, who experiences anger. Some people don't like that and they want to explain it away, but we need to look at the reality of what sin is and who God is, because it's in that reality that we can then go and find healing. A good illustration of just this this need to talk about things that are hard is I remember when I went to visit Jess when she was at a hospital in Johannesburg. I've told this story a few times. And I went to visit her at the hospital and go and see some of the work that she did was doing. And one of the things that I, I found quite jarring was she was on burns. Right? So there's victims, children, and adults who have received really bad burns, some of them terrible burns. And now they're in the hospital and they need to be looked after and they need to have the burns heal properly. But how you how you make sure that a burn heals properly is by stretching it. Right? You can't let... A burn, particularly over a joint, heal incorrectly. It'll cause future pain and it'll cause future problems. And so the task, the terrible task that Jess would have to do, was go into these wards and stretch out people's burns, the area of pain, the area where they're like, "That's my owie, I don't want you to hurt me." And, and sometimes, apparently, the adults were worse than the kids. But but there, and and where it really hit me, how hard it was for this this experience was that we're walking in the wards and she simply walked in, hadn't touched a single person or said a thing. They saw her and started crying. Is it terrible? Sorry. It's not, not nice. I I mean, I don't know how people do that. I I had to leave. I had to leave the ward because I just wasn't used to that. I hadn't been gifted and trained with that skill to be able to do that. But I knew, and and the, the verse in my head, it's in Hosea, I think it's in Hosea 6, where it says, he has torn us so that he may heal us. That's a pattern in the way God works. Sometimes God does do the tearing because he's working towards the healing. Sometimes we need to come to church and be encouraged. Sometimes we need to be comforted. Sometimes we need to feel uncomfortable. And we need to sit in the reality of a holy God who is displeased with sin and remember the weight of it. See, this is not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus had the same view of sin. In the New Testament, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He's not being literal, but he's trying to tell you, take this seriously. This is Jesus' It's not Old Testament now, because I know we like to try and use that divide to get away from the difficult things. This is Jesus. In the early church, one of the first stories we have are of two people who walk into the gathering, and they've lied in their hearts to the Holy Spirit, and they drop dead. Instant judgment. That's not how God always works. In fact, it's very rare, I would imagine. But God takes sin seriously. It deeply offends him. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. And with God, the punishment always fits the crime, always fits the crime because sin deserves death. And it's terrible because of who it's against that's the key. I, I find when I'm struggling with the reality of the judgment and the extent of the judgment, and I go, but how can that be a fair judgment for this amount of sin? How can this eternal suffering be, I'm wrestling I'm with it? It's because I've lost sight of who the sin is against. and And that's the bit that I just know with, no eloquence in my speech can I get that across to anyone. We need the Holy Spirit to bring to our minds the reality of a holy God who is far beyond anything we could ever imagine. I mean, we, we know this. We have a sense of sacredness, right? If someone does something terrible, right? If, if someone beats on an adult, they're like, okay, that's not great. Okay, you, you shouldn't like, you know, if, if I got like beaten up by another guy, you'd be like, that was terrible, right? If a young lady got beaten up by another guy, you'd still say it's terrible. And maybe in your head, if you're one of those logic people, you'd be like, no, it's still terrible. It's equal, right? But there's something in you that goes, well, that that feels slightly worse. If a baby got assaulted, feel that temperature in the room. There's something in us that knows that the the sin, there's something about it that who it's against says something about the gravity of the sin. That's why we have all of these rules, although they're becoming outdated about how we treat queens and kings and presidents. We know about there are sacred areas that you can't do certain things. You can't do certain things. Deep in our gut, even if our head logic doesn't want to go there, we know that there is something about who the sin is against, who the offense is against that, that helps us to measure its terribleness. And if we cannot get our head around the righteousness of the judgment or the rightness of the judgment, it's because we have not got the right perspective of the judge. God is the most holy, most perfect, most pure being in the universe. And we have rejected him consistently and we consistently do so every time we trust our own judgment. Every time we sin, we are making a statement about God's worth and his value. We are insulting him with our actions. And so God is so pure that sin is offensive and he deals with it justly. And so at this time in history, God determines to judge the world with a flood. And afterwards, he then speaks. Sin is serious. It's good that we feel that. We jump to the end in Genesis 9 now. And God blessed Noah. They've come out the flood, um, come out the ark rather, through the flood. They've worshipped and then God speaks and God blesses Noah. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He then says a few things about some of the responsibilities they have. And then he says again to close off the section. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And this is just a simple jump back to Genesis early with Adam. That was the commission they were given look after the earth, be fruitful and multiply. And this is God saying, humanity has now rebooted. Okay, Noah is now the new Adam. Okay, we're gonna start again. We're gonna try this again. And so God gives them this commission to take charge of the earth. But he also gives them a covenant. And we're gonna go into that now and look into the covenant that God makes with Noah and what a covenant is. But before we do that, I thought it would be good to just wrap up where this goes. What, what actually happens after all of this? See, Noah um, makes a great choice and goes and gets drunk, because all the good things in life happen when you're drunk, of course. And so he ends up naked and ashamed in a garden, just like the first Adam. Nothing really changes, does it? Sin continues to be a problem. We get the story then of humanity building this tower. It's called the Tower of Babel. And in their pride and arrogance, they again seek to be like God, making the same problem. And so God humbles them and scatters them. And so we're left with this reality that the flood doesn't actually solve the problem of the human heart. I think that's one of the reasons the story is here for us. To know that this is a deeper problem than just Cleansing the slate and picking the best person in the world to try and start again. Because even the best person at that time failed. And so we left with this reality that there is a world tainted by sin and God is determined to save it. He hasn't given up. And that's where this covenant comes at. And then when we pick up in this next section, looking at the man of Abraham, we start to see a hint at God's plan to save the world. But let's jump into the covenant that God makes with Noah. We're going to read through it and we'll, we'll look at what a covenant is. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. The bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me And all flesh that is on the earth. See, Jason mentioned earlier when we were taking communion this idea of a covenant. And here we have the second covenant, right? Covenants are really the backbone, the spine to the story of the Bible. At these particular points in history, God comes in and he creates a covenant with people who represent humanity or with the nation of Israel. And he makes a covenant with them. And it usually usually helps us to track the story and where we are at in the story of the Bible. The first covenant we know is, is with Adam and Eve. And as Jason said, a covenant really is a chosen relationship. It's a, it's a relationship with mutual promises and mutual commitments. It's more than a contract. It's something personal. It's a partnership between two parties with a goal. The best illustration we have is marriage. two people coming together to make vows and commitments. And at times the covenants have conditions as well. And so we look at the covenant in creation as an example. God makes this covenant with Adam and Eve. He says they oversee the earth but must not eat from the one tree. There is promise of blessing if they stick to the conditions of the covenant. But there are also the consequences of a cursing if the covenant is broken. The covenant is broken. And we get to the flood, and now God decides to make a new covenant. See God's covenant with Noah is an everlasting one, and it's unique in a special way. It has no required commitments from us it's It's just a permanent covenant that despite the evil of mankind he God seems to predict that that this flood just doesn't solve the problem, which is the evil in our hearts. And but he says, despite that, I'm making a covenant with you. Despite that, I will not do this again. No flood. I will preserve human life. I will be patient despite humanity's evil. I have made a covenant with you. I have made my promise. And we can know that. And here's the thing we know God keeps his promises because he keeps his word. When God says a flood is going to come, a flood comes. When God says, I won't do that, he won't do it. God is faithful to who he is. And so I want to jump into Hebrews and quickly look at that and see how that lens adds to this story. How does the writer of Hebrews understand it? Verse 7, by faith. Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And I thought it would be good to just break this up because quite clearly, Noah is doing something by faith. What is he doing? He's building an ark to save his household. Okay, so Noah is acting in faith, and the action he takes is to build an ark. But what is the manner in which he builds the ark? We're given this little little phrase which I think is so important. It says that he builds the ark in reverent fear. And so he he's building and he's building in an attitude in a, in a, in a, in a fear of what's gonna happen. Why? Because he's been warned by God concerning events unseen. And that word unseen should. Should cause us to jump back to the first verse in Hebrews 11, which gives us a definition of faith that faith is the conviction of things not seen. See, Noah's acting in faith because he believes what God has said, he believes the warning, and he feels, experiences a reverent fear in his heart, a heeding. He hears, he believes, he fears, and he acts. Noah's faith is executed in that he believed what God has said. His faith is partnered in the fact that he fears God. He's not going to test God. And I wanted to touch on this idea of the fear of God, the reverent fear of God. This is actually one of the biggest themes in the Bible. It's, It's one of the biggest themes in the Bible, the fear of the Lord. Throughout the Bible, we are told to fear God, and it's a unique fear and I've heard so many people, and I don 't know why I think I could do any better. So many people try and explain this because we don't we know it's not quite being afraid it's not like this pure terror where it's like there's like there's something wrong happening, there's a person like we, that, we actually think the person is evil because we know that the person we're fearing is good, but there's also it's also not just reverence and awe because reverence and awe doesn't mean you find yourself flat in your face like John does. It's a unique fear. There's something interesting about it. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 25 verse 14 says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Who's friends with someone they fear? you see the uniqueness of this. And I think we water it down when we try and make it just simply, oh, it's just reverence. We just got to be respectful. And then it's obviously not this thing of, well, God's really bad and he's going to be hurtful to us unjustly. No, it's a, it's a real reverent fear, but it brings intimacy. We think we can't have intimacy with God if there's any fear, but God says he reserves his friendship for those who do fear him. We're told to work out our faith with fear and trembling in Philippians. Because there is a weightiness to who God is. That should cause us to feel that sense of fear. There is a holiness to who God is. You see, there would have been people in Noah's time saying, surely God wouldn't do that. You're saying, why are you building the ark? You're saying, "There's a f- no, but surely if there's a God, he wouldn't do that. If there's a God, surely he's more, more loving, more kind. More merciful, not realizing they don't understand what that means. They've made assessments and they are testing the character of God. Noah, he hears God speak and he goes, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to heed this warning because... I fear God because of his holiness and his awesomeness and his justice. You see, many of us might say, but but Ryan, isn't God our father? There can't be fear in that dynamic. And hasn't Jesus removed fear by dying on the cross? Well, I want to point to this verse in 1 Peter. I think it's so important because he brings all of that together and doesn't really explain. He just says these elements can work together, and they should. He says, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers. Ransomed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's the argument Peter makes if you call him father, like that's the condition. If you call him father, then conduct yourself with fear because you know that you were ransomed by the blood of Jesus. It is knowing the cross of Jesus that leads us to fear God. And it is knowing that God is my father that leads me to fear him. It's a dynamic that can't be perfectly related to our experience on earth because God isn't just a bigger human being. Okay, we can't, we we sometimes think of God as just, or he's just a bigger version of us. He's not, he's completely other. And the kind of relationship we have with him is unique. And there are elements of it that we can relate to our earthly fathers and to our earthly friendships, but it's still completely different. The fact that we are ransomed by Jesus and called God father is the reason we should conduct ourselves with fear. I get this picture. I don't know if you've watched these movies or seen even there's, there's real stories of this, of these arrogant sort of you know, like teenagers or like young adults and they're super like just wealthy and just like spoiled and they just do whatever they want and they think they can get away with everything because they've got this dad who's a judge or they've got this dad who's the prime minister or something. I don't know. They've got this person who's in a high privilege of power and they think that means they can live how they want. And if we think like that about God, that's not right. That's not right. You see, we can love him as a father and fear him as the judge. Because he is both good in both roles. He is perfect as our father and he is perfect as the judge. He won't just let us get away with disrespect and sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. And although God is for us, he is mostly for himself in the sense that he cannot deny his character. And so where we deny him, he will remain true to himself. But I do want to end by telling you there is rescue for all of us. There is another flood coming, and it's not of water. It's the flood of the final judgment. It is coming. It is real. It's what we declare when we say Jesus is coming back. Because when he's coming back, he's coming back to collect those are his, but he's coming back to judge the world But there is a new ark that we can enter into by faith. The ark of Jesus. So that when God sees us, he sees us in him. And in him, we are forgiven. This is the kind of faith that I think Hebrews is talking about. It's a faith that says God is holy and just and not to be played with. But it's a faith that knows that sin is an offense to God. And it's also a faith that heeds God's warning and seeks refuge in Jesus, it's a faith that trusts in Jesus. And it's a faith that lives a life aware of God's grace and mercy daily. There were people in those times who would say to Noah, "Surely not. surely it can you know, it must be simpler than that it must be easier. surely there's a lighter message here, or well, there's no better message. Than to know that there is a God who is holy and just. Whom we have offended. And yet he has provided a way. Like he did for Noah and his family. For us. To be rescued. There is a lifeline available. There is a lifeline available for all of us. And in his love. He has provided the way of escape. In his love. And through faith we can enter the ark of trusting in Jesus for our rescue. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.